HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it is uh, very slushy and snowy right here in Brooklyn. Um, but actually, it's a pretty good time to set plans in motion for the growing season that's just around the corner. So that's why I'm talking with a couple experts on small scale agriculture or microfarming. And uh, the new book called Microfarming for Profit from Garden to Glory. Written by Dave DeWitt, who's on the line right now from New Mexico. Hi, Dave. Hey, how's it going? I guess you're kind of cold there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been terrible, but actually today is oddly warm. I don't know, and then it's <laughs> going to get cold again. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't have it too well right now. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. And sure. uh, you know, Dave, you've been a longtime food writer. Um, you're also called the Pope of Peppers because you're passionate about growing chili peppers. Um, yeah. yeah, they they uh, give me all kinds of titles like that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I I can handle it. It's okay, nice. <laughs> whatever they want to call me. So no, that's so cool. Um, you know, a food writer who also grows food is like that. Just sounds really really special. Um, so thanks for thanks for writing this book too. Um, I want to also introduce another guest we have. It's B Ayer. She's right here in the station. Hi. Well, good. Hello. Hi, good to meet you. Um, so B is a very experienced farmer. She's been a manager at numerous uh, farming operations, including the youth farm at BK Farmyards right here in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. we're so excited to have you. Good. Um, so this book, I got to say, this is such an excellent book. Um, both B and I have have taken it, um, taken it around. At least I have, like reading through it in the subway, just you know, thinking uh, wistfully about. It being warmer out. Uh, <laughs> it won't be long. Yeah. There. No, but this is also really cool because, you know, I, I seem to have a lot of other titles on, you know, gardening and farming. Um, but this one is really up to date in describing all the ways that micro farming has manifested um, 
right now. So in particular in your home state of New Mexico, so all these cool profiles of farmers and, and what they're doing, um, like yourself. Um, but now, am I correct in thinking like New Mexico is maybe not the most likely state for agriculture? Um, you might think that because yeah. uh, we're in the desert southwest and there's not a whole lot of water here. But, I mean, uh, New Mexico has been under irrigation, you know, the acequias, uh, uh, the ditch system that we have from the rivers and so forth like that has been go- around since, you know, 400 years. We've been uh, using the water that we have carefully uh, to do this, and, and irrigation is a way of life. And fortunately, um, more and more farmers are switching from ditch irrigation to drip irrigation, which, of course, conserves a lot of water and is a very practical way. You've got yeah. some initial ex- expense in putting in drip systems, but once they're in place, you'll use far less water. And, of course, the farmers have to pay for water uh, right. here because the the rains are um, infrequent at best and um, typically in New Mexico um, we get between 8 and 12 inches of rain a year um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that comes during the the summer uh, monsoon season when we get a lot of storms coming up from Mexico and and that sort of thing so um, Mm -hmm. irrigation is the way to go in New Mexico but we grow a a surprising I mean we're the I think fourth largest onion producer in the country wow Um, I didn't know that yeah (laughs) We're second. We're second in chili peppers. We used to be number one, um, but our acreage has dropped from nearly thirty thousand acres to only about eight thousand acres in the past uh, twenty years. Um, begin that's competition from Mexico uh, wow. mostly. We're uh, uh, usually uh, number one or number two pecan producer. Uh, we fight with Georgia and Texas over <laughs> pecans, but uh, those aren't the kinds of crops that you can grow in a micro farm. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean one, one pecan trees. There's your micro farm. You know. <laughs> well, it looks like my assumptions were pretty off, but um, B actually has a lot of experience growing in unlikely places, such as abandoned lots in the city. Yeah, um, it's it's surprising. There's actually quite a lot of land in New York City that is. Pretty good for it's growing. Just there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um, underutilized land, and then there's a lot of land that's temporarily not being used. Mm-hmm. And, and, and roof and rooftops too, right? Yeah, and there's rooftops too. Um, there's all sorts of things there's happening a garden in New York City above our heads right now in the, <laughs> the place where we're sitting. So, yeah, people are discovering that. Yeah, I think in in New York City and a lot of cities, you know, around the world, they're really pushing you know, the edge of what urban agriculture can be and actually how much you can produce in a small space. Right. It is amazing. It is amazing how much you can do. It's uh, astounding to me uh, that I grew um, 300 pounds of tomatoes uh, one year um, in, I would say, no more than a couple of hundred square feet. Well, that's... I mean, it was just unbelievable. It's a lot of tomatoes. That's a lot of tomatoes, and that sounds great. So, so this book is about microfarming, um, and you draw the distinction of you know farming generally implies it's a business, uh, it's for profit, whereas right. gardening is more like a hobby or perhaps a, just like a home, um, you know, vegetable plot. Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to take the leap from farming, I mean, sorry, from gardening to, to micro-farming? Well, um, I've, I've always uh, had a garden, mm-hmm. and I just decided to, to experiment and see whether or not I could uh, create a, a garden that was a profitable little farm. 
mm-hmm. and it turns out that I could, and the decision, of course, is wh- whether or not I keep this up and keep doing it, yeah. or whether I write another book or something. Because <laughs> now I'm thinking that everybody who has about 300 square feet is thinking, well, maybe I can sell those tomatoes, 300 <laughs> tons of tomatoes. <laughs> I'm sorry, pounds. <laughs> tons? That would be another story. Um, yeah, and so, so B, um, tell us a little bit about your operations, because you've worked in, in both sort of educational farms, but then I remember there was like a turn one year at the youth farm where um, you started... Um, producing uh, products, value-added products with your... With yeah. Your right, right. And that's, that's the, uh, the key to having uh, a profitable microfarm. You, you have to think beyond produce. Um, and so many people just think of produce. Oh, right. here's some Tomatoes. carrots. I'll sell them at the farmer's market mm-hmm. or something like that. When in reality, the profit from these things comes from value-added products that you can come up with. Well, and sometimes what I that's was, the case, but I was, not I had always. so many tomatoes that I would just go ahead and, and do sun-dried tomatoes yeah. and see if I could sell them to chefs, and as that turned out, I could. Right. So, so B, you also sold, you know, fruit that was freshly dug, like yeah. carrots and tomatoes. Yeah, so right. I used to work um, about five years ago. Um, we started the youth farm, which was actually a one-acre education and production farm actually on the grounds of a high school in -hmm. central Brooklyn. And we produced quite a lot of food that we sold, um, and we did also some value-added products as well. And, um, you know, it's amazing. You can definitely make money doing value-added products, but often, you know, when you're working on a really small scale, Mm -hmm. um, like the way that a lot of farms in New York City and, and other urban centers are, you know, you're not always actually producing the quantity for to make a profit off of the value-added profit because you, you don't, qu- scale. yeah, you don't yeah. quite have the economy of scale sometimes. Right. Um, and then, of course, the other question is is about labor costs and and you know, I, I spend a lot of time in what I do um, talking about the labor costs associated mm. with farming. Um, so, I, in addition to um, co-managing the the youth farm with Molly Culver, I uh, teach, well, I still do, teach for Farm School NYC, which is a two-year certificate program in urban agriculture, and I teach the small farm planning course, and we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time talking to people yeah. about really projecting your labor and how much it's going to cost. Yeah, this whole profit and loss, you know, math, Yeah, trying to figure yeah. it out. And so, unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of small producers will start going into um, a value-added market and not really accurately project how much labor they put into it. (laughs) And now, of course, that depends on if you're trying to pay yourself for your time. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, if you're doing it as a hobby, it's one thing, right? But um, in New York City, usually, you know, um, you know, a lot of urban farming is about, you know, providing entrepreneurship activities and opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't have those opportunities, especially mm-hmm. a lot of the youth in New York yeah. City we work Where with. Where would you ever go to work on a farm in the New York City otherwise? Yeah, or employment. Right. There's a huge problem with employment for youth. Um, so it's, you know, it's often a great activity to mm-hmm. actually pay youth to produce a value-added product. That is such I, would, a- I agree with that. That's uh, that's an excellent way um, to teach youngsters um, uh, a trade or a craft or, or something like that, that you never know when you're going to be able to use it or that they might move away from the city, you know. And then they'd have the knowledge to go ahead and have a, uh, you know, one or two acre micro farm uh, based on what they learned in the inner city. So there's, um, you know, there's so many 
pros, I guess, of micro farming, um, whether you're making a profit or not. Um, but I thought it was really interesting to find out, um, th- you know, flipping through this book, there's so many niches, too, that you could get into um, farming uh, ingredients that you don't find elsewhere. So one example I thought it was a great example was like ginseng or ginger. Um, uh, Dave, you mentioned people were getting into, uh, you know, tilapia farming, mushroom farming, things that I don't think of when I think about farming because I think of tomatoes. Um, so what about these, like, I guess specialty items? Um, is that a good route if you're just starting out and you're maybe not the jack-of-all-trades when it comes to agriculture? Well, the uh, I, I like to focus on uh, Chili peppers? Uh, smaller crops <laughs> that kidding. have a higher value, I guess you, what you'd say. Right. Uh, and right. I'm, talking, I'm speaking of... Um, Oh, just a couple of examples. Super hot chilies, which I did mm-hmm. when pe- when people were paying for a, a one pod. Um, of course, they wanted the seeds, but they, for one ripe pod, they were paying a dollar or two. And uh, it doesn't take too many pods to start making a little bit of a profit from the the plants that you can actually grow in containers. So, you know, the the size uh, you could have yeah. a couple of hundred square feet and and literally raise a couple of hundred plants. Uh, given given one square foot, um, at least. You know the, uh, the 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 pot average anyway, wow. and then and then there's a lot of people who uh, grow things under lights. I'm speaking of medical marijuana in this particular case, if it's legal, um, and you you know obey all the rules and so forth like that of the particular state you live in, um, that can be highly. Uh, I'm sure that would well. be lucrative. Um, yeah, because because that's a crop that is extremely valuable mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, in small quantities. Sure. Uh, and, it, and uh, I'm not making any moral judgments here, but with you know nearly half the states in the union having some form of marijuana legalized, I don't think it's something we have to whisper about anymore. It's it's legal. Yeah, and, I uh, definitely So hear as long lot. as it's legal and you can grow it properly, fine. Um, and of course, not everybody does, but uh, the the changes here out west are just amazing in in, in terms of, of medical marijuana. It's it's just astounding. I mean, here's Colorado uh, collecting forty plus million dollars in taxes. <laughs> a lot of states would love to have that kind of income. Wow. So I, th- I think what we're going to see is, is people paying more attention to the, the economics right. of the whole situation. And, and other, other uh, things that you can grow, like, you know, um, uh, super hot chilies. And then when you take something like if you're growing tomatoes and, and you, you try to grow something that the chefs want to buy, right. a particular variety, some kind of, of thing that will get their attention, something that, um, like the chef I was growing for, he would make sauces out of the different colored uh, tomatoes uh, that I would bring up to him, purple tomatoes and yellow tomatoes, orange tomatoes and all that. They were uh, sun-dried, and then he would make sauces that mm. he would um, uh uh, you know, using all the different kinds of things, and people would say, "What's this purple sauce?" Oh, that's from purple tomatoes, and he get a lot of play on the menus and all that kind of stuff because he he actually uh, put the source on the menu, you know, that grown is... by so and so, so and so. So that gives awesome. the farmers a, a really warm and fuzzy feeling that they're not just doing this um, as a chore or even for a little bit of money, but they're actually getting some stardom here. Right. Um, as a provider for a top-notch restaurant, that's that's saying something. Definitely. So, um, B, did you find yourself gravitating towards certain um, more profitable crops over time? Um, 
Well, I, you know, I think that's a really important question, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about micro farming, especially in the context of, of urban agriculture, of mm-hmm. what crops you're going to grow. And, and I think it really gets to the question of, are you growing things that have a higher profit um, versus growing things for the community and uh-huh. who you're actually growing for? And I think that that is something that is really important and not to downplay the need to actually be financially viable. Um, But I I do feel like, you know, especially in urban agriculture, it's important to do both. It's important to be economically viable and also to have very strong values in your business and in your farm to think about what you're growing and who you're growing it for and what economy that's setting up. So I think in New York City, there's a lot of amazing farms that are growing very highly profitable items such as microgreens, salad mixes. Uh, specialty tomatoes, herbs, herbs, things like that for high-end chefs, and that allows those organizations to also grow, you know, some food for their community. Exactly. And, you know, to to kind of offset both. Mm. Um, But, you know, I don't think we, in urban agriculture, we're really trying to to push the model of just growing high-end crops for high-end restaurants, because that's not really serving a larger social justice Oh, yeah, and especially when you're teaching the kids, that totally makes perfect sense. Yeah, or for adults. I just, you know, it's not the economy that we're trying to have in Mm -hmm. New York City. Um, But, you know, to think about being financially viable, it is really important to think about those niche crops and which crops you do have a higher profit margin. Yeah. So... um, is it, it's is great it, to have a mixture of both. Yeah. Is it more fun for you to have a whole spectrum of different plants? Because, you know, looking at a looking at a small garden and seeing, like, all kinds of stuff growing in the same patch, I bet that's kind of really, I don't know. Yeah. It's I, a great I mean, feeling. Yeah. I don't know anyone, you know, in the city specifically that's doing that other mm-hmm. than, you know, maybe looking at the rooftop um, hydroponic farms. Yeah, Gotham um, Greens or something. Yeah, that are, okay. are really doing, like, the specialty herbs and, but, and things like that. But, yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. A, a, an amazing micro farm I think of is Oko Farms right here in Bushwick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they do a, an amazing array of vegetables as well as fish. Whoa. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's an amazing aquaponics farms, and they teach aquaponics, and they work with uh, the local schools. Um, that- and so that you know they have that niche market and that works and it together. works yeah. exactly it's that combination Whoa. of things that i think you know i mean the hot phrase of a triple bottom line business but a triple threat yeah that's also <laughs> but it's so much fun for maybe. a farmer too right yeah. like i i like in the book that it was saying you know you need to have sustainability for the farmer too and yeah. what they're doing and yeah and that you know that that kind of audience reaction when people see that purple tomato sauce as well as when they see this crazy integrated farm with fish and something <laughs> like i just think yeah those wow factors are really eye catching and and hopefully inspiring for a lot of uh, new folks getting into farming um i'm going to cut to a quick little musical interlude and we'll be right back <laughs> You are listening to Quick by Dreams, and this is Eat Your Words on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, hey, we're listening to Eat Your Words, and we're talking with Dave DeWitt, author of Microfarming for Profit and many other books, and B. Ayer, farmer extraordinaire. Um, so... Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty for just a second because I'm maybe seriously thinking about doing, you know, some agriculture here. Um, but, um, Dave, you mentioned that you think that for a micro farm, the, the most cost-efficient efficient, um, way to kind of arrange your plot is in raised beds or basically well, containers. That, that, just, that just works for me uh, mm-hmm. because I'm going to be irrigating with drip hoses um, and I can better contain everything um, and in a raised kind of bed situation. Uh, it works for me best, uh, mm-hmm. but it might not work for everybody best. For example, um, I like it because I know that we don't get much rainfall here, so um, uh, it, it works perfectly. It's it so contains, well drained, but yeah. in, in, it's, it might not work in, in some other places um, as well as it does here. Mm. Um, in other words, if you if you got eighty inches of rain instead of eight inches of rain, all the soil might wash Ew. out of your raised beds, yeah. <laughs> and it may so. not might not work at all. But for me, it, it, it's just one of a number of different um, uh, you know beds I can use. I also used uh, what I call modified irrigated beds, which weren't raised, but they, they had like um, uh, little little, little uh, uh, furrows uh, yeah. in the garden, and I could just put the hose in one section of the garden, and it would water the whole thing in about a half an hour, and then I could I could uh, remove the hose, so it was a um, that that was also efficient, but it wasn't raised or any, or anything like that. It was just you know uh, soil with um, some organic fertilizer and uh, manure uh, rototilled into it, and then I would form the beds with a shovel, uh, and that worked pretty well for me too. But I still prefer the raised beds. Um, uh, I like that better. Is there also a concern about like controlling the quality of the soil when it, you're dealing with a small contained system like a container or raised bed? Um, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. You you have to uh, in container gardening. The the problem is root cramping, um, and so you have to have a a very loose kind of soil. With hmm. I use perlite, for example, to as a soil separator, um, and and theoretically. You know the, the the foliage mass above the ground is theoretically supposed to be equal to the root system below it in terms of volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what happens with trees. That's what happens with 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 most plants. But in containers, of course, you're restricting the roots. Yeah. Um, and so your your foliage won't get as big as it does if the if the plant is just 
directly planted into the ground, and then you have to use water-soluble fertilizers. Um, let's not even get into organic versus inorganic at this point, <laughs> because I don't think the plant knows the difference between nitrogen, uh, no, no matter how it's applied, but that's just the way I feel. Oh, I prefer just... to use organic techniques, but a lot of times you can't um, in, in certain circumstances. Like, for example, if you have people growing inorganically next to you, driving all the insects into your field, uh, that's a, a big problem to keep your own garden organic when there's, there's drift. Um, but in containers, um, I just uh, you know know I'm going to be using a water soluble fertilizer, um, and then you know if it, with the cramped roots and so forth, they can dry out very very right. quickly. So you can keep it, it all controlled. Right. Yeah. So I know a lot of people are confused. You know, especially in New York City, it's like, is my soil in the in ground soil? Is that good quality? Should I do the raised beds? Is that just going to give me, uh, you know? be able to sleep better and not worry about it. Um, uh, B, you guys had a in-ground. Yeah, in so um, at the youth farm where, where I used to work, um, we actually stumbled upon amazing soil. Soil, existing really? Soil, yeah, but you know what? I think no matter where you're farming or gardening, anywhere, if you're in the city or if you're in rural areas, the first thing you want to do is do a complete soil test. Because Absolutely. you're going to find out both the nutrients in the soil and any contamination. Yeah, and, and what Dave was saying about, like, traveling contaminants from neighbors, plots, from who knows what. I'm sure there's a lot of who knows what in the city, too. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of contamination in the city. There's also a lot of contamination in rural areas, especially, you know, if you are... Uh, farming somewhere that used to be farmed conventionally or was an orchard or something like or that. So, fracking or something yeah, like that. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not just a city concern, but it's definitely a huge concern in the city. And, um, you know, luckily in most cities in the United States right now, there's some organizations that will help you do soil testing. Um, yeah. And then, of course, um, you got to send your soil test to a lab. Here we have Cornell. We have Brooklyn College locally. And then you can, uh, you know, decide what to do. Um, very often, it's it's covering up that existing toxic soil in New York City and and bringing other soil in or creating soil on site. Hmm. Um, but sometimes you stumble upon gold and you find beautiful soil even in New York City. <laughs> well, well, I I live in the South Valley of Albuquerque, which is semi-rural, um, and I found in my backyard tires, oh. glass. <laughs> um, uh, uh, evidence of uh, many, many garbage dumps, um, oh. and I had to clean all that up. And I'm not even in the inner city yeah. or anything like that. So yeah. uh, I was, I was shocked. But it turns out that people, before there was regular garbage pickup, people would burn the garbage in the backyard. That's what they did. <laughs> and uh, uh, that goes back maybe forty, fifty, a hundred years. I'm not sure. Wow. But uh, uh, yeah, you have to have your soil tested and you have to um, take all the contaminants that you see um, out of the soil. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be even more broken glass in the inner city, but I found a lot of it. So uh, just, just saying. Really funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I might be leaning towards the, the container or the raised bed, but, um, uh, what about, we're running a little bit out of time, but you know, what is the biggest challenge you think, um, in your experiences going, you know, trying to make a profit, um, specifically? I, th I think it's getting kicked in the butt by nature um, uh -huh. is one of the biggest problems. I mean, we have a problem with curly top, which is a viral disease that affects peppers and, and tomatoes especially. And uh, All often, those diseases uh, sound so scary. Of my like tomato rot. crops wiped out and I have to replant. 
Okay, so it's Mother Nature. Mother Nature. What do you got, B? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, Mother Nature is pretty important, and you know, knowing actually horticulture well or or okay. uh, what you're doing. But, um, you know, also just the market is sometimes difficult. You know, the price of food often is so low and, and people really don't value. You mean the price of imported GMO food <laughs> yeah. is really low? The price of, of the food that doesn't have a lot of nutrients that's right. sold in our neighborhoods. Um, and so I think, you know, kind of changing the larger food system is, is, right. is the biggest problem. I feel like, you know, we've got an, uh, a lot of amazing farmers and great educational programs mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, and if you're in rural areas, great, you know, the organic extension specialists are amazing, but um, changing the food system is, is a lot harder, but yeah. we're trying. All right. Food system, mother nature. <laughs> um, what beyond the profit to you, Dave, um, is the best aspect of doing uh, your micro farming? Oh, I think uh, eating the perfect ripe tomato with little oil and vinegar um, for and using that as lunch, um, making uh, a chili sauce that just takes tastes wonderful. It's it's that kind of appreciation of the food you're growing, uh, and you say, "Boy, that was a good one." That was a really good one. Yeah, that sounds that sounds so perfect. I can't wait <laughs> for <laughs> it to get warmer here. Uh, B, what do you think? Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, everything, you know, um, I love what I do and, uh, I, I would agree with Dave. I, I have a line of, of hot sauces and salsas Mm -hmm. called farmer bees. And, um, you know, in the winter time sitting around with friends and, and having them have that hot sauce, um, is, uh, is a really, you know, personally an amazing experience. And, uh, I think, you know, even more, you know, wonderful than that is, is, is knowing that, you know, the food justice movement and urban farming in New York City is making a difference in people's lives and uh, giving opportunities to people and, you know, fighting against the the corporate food system and and even things like gentrification. Um, All in this bottle of chili sauce. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, the 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 urban farms in New York City are, you know, they are places of of community organizing and and trying to steer Mm -hmm. our city to where we want it to be. And and, and, uh, I mean, what better than that? Plus fresh tomatoes. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, guys, thank you so much for sharing your personal journeys. Um, And definitely check out Micro Farming for Profit from Garden to Glory. This is such a great um, not only a how-to and all these steps and all these considerations, but a lot of cool uh, personal profiles of farmers. I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much, Dave. Oh, good talking to you. All right, guys. See you next week on Eat Your Words. The theme song for Eat Your Words Ooh, is Lovin' Like This by the California like Honey Drops. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.